I'll get into my message. Brock said we're kicking off a new series, an Advent series, and that is true. Last week dovetails perfectly into this week. There was that blessing at the end of 2 Thessalonians, that the, that the Lord of peace would grant the Thessalonians, and by extension us, peace, that he would do that himself. And we talked about how this wholeness and fulfillment and satisfaction that we're longing for comes to us as we come ever more into alignment with God's presence and His promises. And in fact, this series that we're going to be spending four weeks in is a study on four promises that accompany the advent or arrival of Jesus in the world. Now, this Advent season, it's it's something we observe every year. This is a tradition for us, if you're not familiar. It's a time, it's a four weeks of preparation in anticipation of the celebration of Christmas, the meaning of the birth of Jesus to us as Christians. And each year, we have a different frame of reference in our study. And I went into it thinking, like, again, how are we going to be building our faith as a community? How are we going to be receiving that kingdom confidence that we talked about a few months back. And I think there's no better way than by looking at the promises, what God has promised us and what has come to fulfillment in the arrival of Jesus. This morning, we're starting with the promise of salvation. So open up to John chapter 3. Let's open up to John chapter 3. Being in an Advent series does not mean we're just sitting in the story of Christmas every single week. We're talking about the nature of the significance of what the birth of Jesus is all about. So that's why we're in John chapter 3. There's no baby Jesus here. We are going to talk about rebirth. So that is a theme, but Jesus is an adult. So you can raise your hand if you need a Bible. One of the ushers will pass one to you. Let's read this encounter between Jesus and this Pharisee, this spiritual teacher called Nicodemus. Verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit." How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son." This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, 
for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now in this scene, right, we've got this high-ranking religious devotee in Nicodemus. And he's like, uh, you know, you can picture him sort of like the university professor of Jewish religion, right? He's the doctor of Jewish religion. And being part of the Jewish religious council, uh, he's necessarily going to be older in years. He's going to be likely older than Jesus. And I sort of picture him like Neil deGrasse Tyson or something of his generation. Neil deGrasse Tyson, this astrophysicist who basically gets called in anytime we need a scientist to talk about something that's engaging, you know? And, and he's older, and he's got all this experience, and really he's an astrophysicist, but, uh, you know, he gets called in to talk about everything just because, oh, he's smart, you know, we need that guy. And, and, and sort of like this individual, Nicodemus, would be perceived the same way among his peers. And he's someone scrupulous in his behavior because he's part of the Pharisees, this sect of Judaism that wasn't just known for their knowledge of religion, but their expert practice of religion. You see, in everything, any, any skill, any culture, there are behaviors that will signify uh, whether or not you're an expert or a novice. This is true in anything. Like, I can tell instantly when somebody holds a hammer and they go to hammer a nail if they've ever used tools before. Like, I can just tell instinctively when they pick up the drill, like, eh, you probably should put that back down. You do not know how to use that, and you might hurt yourself or someone else. And, and, and even in our culture, right, in the church, when someone walks in for the first time and they're unfamiliar with aspects of the church, there's little tells, right, that remind them that they're new and that everyone else is an expert in this culture. Like I say, turn to John 3, and everyone goes, and the people are like, oh, the index, you know, or, or we're singing songs, and, you know, people have their eyes closed, and they can sing the songs, and other people, they're like looking at the screens, what are we singing here? You know, that reminds them, and I want to just normalize that, everybody had a day when they didn't know where John chapter 3 was. And everybody had a day where they didn't know the words of the songs, but that's just the feeling that you get. I'm a novice, and these people are experts. They're accustomed here. Where the, the Pharisees were that on steroids. You know, they'd made everything in life, this evidence that they were an expert in the things of God, whether it was the things they did eat or didn't eat. It was the way that they washed their hands before meals, the way that they dressed, the way that they prayed, the people that they would spend time with and not spend time with. Everything signified their religious elitism. So that is the backdrop that adds to the drama that's unfolding in this scene that maybe you don't pick up on on the surface. Nicodemus is curious about Jesus and the miracles that he's been performing, but he comes secretly under the cover of darkness because he worries what the public would think if they saw him seeking out Jesus in the daylight. Like, wait a minute, do I need, I'm, I'm the religious expert, do I need to come find answers from Jesus? Like, he didn't want that perception. It's like me on Thanksgiving Day. This was the first year we hosted Thanksgiving. I was entrusted with cooking the turkey. I want to say I didn't dry it out. If you need advice, go to YouTube. Don't go to me. But I was there, you know, the turkey's hot off the press, right? It's sitting right there. Everything else is ready. I got to carve it. That's one of those things you don't think about when you're thinking about all the pressure of just making sure this turkey doesn't dry out the first time you're cooking it. So what do I do? I get my laptop out. I get YouTube out. I got a knife in one hand, you know, and I'm silencing it 
and propping it up this way. I don't want anyone to know that I don't know how to carve a turkey. You know, but I've got to give this impression that I was born knowing how to carve a turkey. So I keep it silent, right? I don't want that perception of weakness. So also, Nicodemus is approaching Jesus trying to protect against this perception of weakness, being seen questioning Jesus about the truth as if he didn't already know it. Now, Jesus is always a step or two or 20 ahead of his audience. You know, it says in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men, and he didn't need anyone to testify about man. He got it. He could always hear the heart of someone speaking underneath their words. We're not usually good at this. You know, someone tells us something on the surface, and we're trying to be interpreters of the heart, but it's like a foreign language for us. This is what causes a lot of conflicts with each other. <laughs> you know, and sometimes the messaging is very different. What someone says, well, what's actually going on in their heart, we're pretty good at masking that. The Scriptures tell us that every single person that Jesus interacted with, and there's a lot of scenes here in the early part of John's Gospel, challenge you to go back and read it, he read their mail. He read their mail. Right after this is going to be the Samaritan woman, right? Because they're talking, but he's hearing their heart. There's not a single one of you in here this morning that's faking anything before God. There's nobody in here that's masking where you're really at with God or your experience of life. I mean, maybe nobody else is interpreting what's going on in your heart. But Jesus is always operating at that level. So here Nicodemus comes with this question, right? Oh, I've seen these miracles. I'm, I'm curious about you. Tell me a little bit about your story, Jesus. And he's like, bam, deeper level. Let's go straight to the heart. Let me tell you something. You want to know about me? You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you experience being reborn. I mean, he just went right for it. Like, uh, you want to, you, you know, dance around this relationship, you want to come investigate, maybe see if I've got something for you? You can't even know or see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And of course, Nicodemus says, you know, as someone not born again, how is this possible? I don't see this. Verse 4, you know, am I going to go back in my mother's womb and come back out? That's what you're talking about here, Jesus? You know, it's an unpleasant visual. It's a good thing it's not potluck Sunday. None of us wants to be thinking about this here. But he, again, he, he's not picking up on it because he hasn't been born again. He can't see the kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus means, verse 5. Anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God must be born again of water and the Spirit. Jesus is conveying that one must be washed and renewed in an entire transformation of their being if they want to see and experience the things of God. And he goes on to describe the nature of this spiritual rebirth. In verse 6, he explains that flesh gives birth to flesh. We all come into the world by means of the flesh, by biological mothers and biological fathers. Everyone has been born into the world that way. You had a biological mother, you had a biological father, and then, poof, there's you, born of the flesh. It's kind of weird to think. Everybody that you look at in the world has gone through this experience. Everyone who's here has been born. In fact, that's helpful to keep in mind when somebody's really agitating. You can think to yourself, maybe one time they were a cute little baby. How far they have fallen. But at one time, they were just a kid, right? 
I mean, keep that in mind. But there's a second birth that Jesus says is required in life. Not of your father or mother, but of God. Spirit giving birth to spirit. It's something invisible that the eyes can't see, that God affects in us to produce new life in us. It's like the wind. And Thanksgiving Day was a perfect example. Was that just not the most insane windstorm you ever experienced? Right? You didn't see the wind, but that didn't make it not real. You can see the effect it's having. It's blowing the trees sideways. It's moving things, right? It's throwing things in all different directions. You know when it's present, even though you can't see it. And that's true of everyone born of the Spirit of God. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be that someone goes back into their mother and is born again for it to be literal what's happening. He goes, when you're born of the Spirit of God, it's invisible to the naked eye, that act, but the effect, when God's Spirit moves on someone and bends them and changes them and reshapes them and transforms them, it's apparent that He is at work just as the wind moves the trees. Now, there's something very key about salvation that Jesus is previewing for us and conveying in what he says to Nicodemus. He clarifies that salvation is something God does in us, not something we do for God. Salvation is something God does in us. It's not something we do for God. He says, you must be born again of God the Spirit, not you, not flesh, the Spirit begetting the Spirit in you. And in fact, where we begin in our faith journey in salvation is where we continue in faith. Like that's why our name as a church community is Branches, taken from John chapter 15. What is a branch's job as part of the plant? Its job is to remain vitally attached to the vine, the life source. And it's the vine which pushes all the nutrients and produces the fruit through the branch. It's not the branch's work that's highlighted in John 15. It's the vine that's highlighted. And the branch has one role, and it's to desire and seek the vine's nutrients and life through itself to produce fruit. Now, this means of salvation, that it's going to come from something God does, not something we do, and that the means of our ongoing faith journey of walking with Jesus, that it's being connected with Him and He does everything else, that's 100% diametrically opposed to everything we're trained to believe, in American society especially. You know, when I was born, from the moment flesh beget flesh, right, you could have handed me a hammer and a drill because it was time to get to work, right? I mean... From when you're a kid, it depends on you. You got to get the grades. You got to get the diploma. You got to get the job. You got to work super hard so you can get the raise, so that you can get the house and the rest of the goods so that you can make it. It's all in your hands to accomplish. So, of course, when we enter into our spiritual life, we think the same thing. I have to work super hard for God to earn a place in the afterlife. And Jesus says, flesh begets flesh. All that stuff that you do is just going to beget more stuff that you do. It's not of me. I don't need you to work for me. I need to work through you. You know, I don't, I don't need you to have all this self-motivation and excitement on your own. 
I need you to rest in me. I don't need you to live this life where you're constantly talking at me. I need you to listen to me. I don't need you to go achieve in my name. I need you to learn how to depend on me. Guys, you won't hear that anywhere else in life. A lot of times we struggle in our spiritual life because we don't have that gear in us that's called dependence because we've been trained to live in this independence. You know, could you believe that salvation has nothing to do with what you and I can do? Nicodemus couldn't believe it. He said in verse 9, how can this be? (laughs) And Jesus does nothing except throw salt on his wounded ego by saying, come on, man, you're the expert of religion. You're the pro in this stuff, and you don't even understand the elementary teachings that if you were going to have any access to life, it wasn't going to come from you or anyone else around you, but that it was going to come from God. So if I can't have you understand this stuff, how do I share with you the things of heaven from where I came? And this is where this meeting turns from a dialogue to a diatribe, a monologue about Jesus. Jesus is getting all the more clear. The the gospel is getting all the more clear through John's writing that to see the kingdom to be born of water and spirit, to enter into the kingdom, to experience salvation is going to come through exclusively the person of Jesus. In verse 14, he previews the day when he's going to be lifted up, meaning he's going to be placed on a cross, this device of torture and execution. And God will receive his death as serving to satisfy the judgment reserved for everyone in the world. And all who look to Jesus, all who look upon his sacrifice as standing in their place will move from being condemned to being pardoned and freed from their judgment. They're going to be healed and a rebirth is going to take place for them. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness and the people were healed, so will people be healed when they look to Jesus. But wait a minute. What is this about a snake in the wilderness and Moses? Well, guys, don't you know this story? This is a very popular story in the Bible. The book of Numbers, chapter 21. I mean, this is all where you guys were in your devotionals this morning, right? The book of Numbers. You're all experts in this. Wedged in chapter 21 of the book of Numbers is this account of the Israelites who are being led by the presence of God toward the promised land. And the Israelites are people, just like we're people. And they don't like what's going on. They don't like the food that they're eating. They think that they've been abandoned, and they're pushing back against God, and they're pushing back against Moses. So God sends them judgment. He sends these poisonous snakes into the camp, and they start getting bit by some of these snakes, and they say, whoa, wait a minute. We're so wrong. We've been wrong the whole time. God, please forgive us. And so God gives them a means to escape from their own condemnation. He tells Moses, I want you to forge this bronze snake, lift it up in the camp, And when anyone looks upon that snake, they will be healed. So also God has provided the solution to our own condemnation and judgment in sending Jesus. All who look upon Him are healed and so experience eternal life, this resurrection life in the kingdom of God. So speaking of salvation, that it's something that God does, not something that we do for Him, I want to add to that that salvation is found exclusively in the person of Jesus, in looking to the person of Jesus. That's the metaphor here. That's the analogy that Jesus is playing off of with the snake in the wilderness. You know, I'd say that so much of our life deals with perspective. I teach my kids this all the time. I say, look where you want to throw. 
Look at what you want to catch. Look where you want to go. And when they nail my truck for the 50th time with the baseball, we review. We say, what were you looking at when you threw that baseball? You clearly were not looking at me. You were looking over there. I, I am very far from the truck, intentionally, because I'm worried about this very scenario happening. But you're going you're gonna to throw where you're looking. If you're not looking at what I'm throwing at you, you're not going to catch it. You know how many times my kids have crashed and fallen, skinned knees on their scooters, on their bikes? Why? They were not looking in the right direction. That's where they're going to go. And it's a metaphor for our life. Where is your gaze set? Where is your mind preoccupied? Where's your mind's eye focused? Right? In your relationships, in your goals, in your aspirations. To what are you looking? So much of that is going to be formed by the object that you're looking at. To look to Jesus is to find healing in the midst of all those different scenarios of our life. You know, the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, they looked to sin, and they caught condemnation and judgment. And when they looked to the snake, they experienced healing and salvation. The same is given to us. God has sent His Son to be the object that we can look to, the person that we can look to, to receive salvation and healing. And He's exclusively the source of it. You know, why would God do this? Create this means of redemption. In the Old Testament, they rebelled against Him. He sent the snakes, and He could have just sat back and said, that's what you deserved. But yet they cried out, and He gave them a means to escape their condemnation. Same thing with us. Okay, we've got our own ways. Flesh begets flesh. You know, we're living in condemnation. Why would he provide this means of redemption? Well, it's spoken here in John's gospel. God so loved the world. God is love. It's of his essential nature that he wouldn't even spare his one and only son. You know, that, that would be essentially conveying the thing of highest value in the ancient world, which would be your one and only son. This was the mission of Jesus, to be that expression of love from God to us. Verse 17, he came not to condemn the world, but to save it and give it life. Whoever looks to him, believes in him, trusts in his testimony, is not condemned, but the one who does not believe stands already condemned. For, and this is the third thing I want to speak of salvation, salvation is predicated on judgment. It's interesting what Jesus says here in verse 18. He did not have to come and condemn the world, for it already stood convicted. He didn't have to come in here and say, you guys are all going to hell. I'm already working from that base level. I came here to save you all because you were already at that place. There's going to be a trial at the end of everyone's life. And you're going you're gonna to testify to how you've lived and what you've done. And like the evidence is already in the court. And the conviction could already be read today. And everybody who's alive around us, everyone in this world, stands condemned. They have the death penalty reserved for them, even if they're ignorant of it. Just as Nicodemus was likely ignorant of it. He had all this knowledge, right? He had all the religious practices down, all the memorization. 
But God said, I have only one means by which you're going to enter the kingdom of God, by which you're going to be pardoned from all your sin. And it's not by, you know, outdoing the negative stuff you've done with all this good religious stuff so that the equation works in your favor. You know, if you even think in a court case, does a murderer get his conviction overturned because he did some other nice stuff in his life? You know, what court cases have fly where they're like, you murdered somebody, but he did walk that old lady across the street. He did help her pack those groceries in the back of his car. You know, it's like, wait a minute. There's no way you're convicted based on your evil deeds. So too all are convicted for their works against God unless they look to Jesus. The only reason to believe in Jesus for salvation is because you believe first in condemnation and judgment. That's what I don't understand about so many versions of Christianity today that have done away with hell and sin and judgment. Why are you a Christian? Why are you even saying you follow Jesus? What is the cross? What is salvation? If you didn't first believe that there's judgment and condemnation, what is he saving you from? You know, what's the whole purpose? What's the purpose in being reborn if the way everybody is born is perfect just the way it is, as is? Who needs to be reborn? They came out not needing anything, but salvation is sought only in acknowledging the need for God's love and God's light. Salvation is sought only in acknowledging the need for God's love and God's light. Just try to love someone who doesn't want to be loved. Have you ever tried to love somebody who doesn't want to be loved? And God has that experience with people. I love the world. And they say, I don't need to be loved. You know, Jesus said it himself. You know, in verse 19, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light. They don't love the light that came into the world, so they don't accept it and receive it. They love the darkness instead because their deeds are evil. Not all are going to say they want the light. They love the darkness. You know, people will say, the reason I can't come to Jesus, I have this intellectual hang-up. You know, they say, oh, the reason, you know, I can't come to faith in Jesus is because I have this experience in the church and with Jesus' followers, and Jesus is like, I hear your heart. I understand that maybe this factors into your psyche somewhere, but the reason you don't come to me you love the darkness. That's the real reason you haven't come to me. The real reason you haven't come to me is because you don't want someone to tell you how to live your life. The real reason you don't come to me is because you don't want to have to admit that the way that you've lived your life up to this point was in vain. Is that you don't want to admit that the lifestyle that you think is moral, I actually think is immoral. You don't want to admit that the version of life that you think is good is nothing compared to the good that I actually intended for you to do. Those who love the darkness avoid the light and don't want their spiritual poverty and their need for grace exposed. So they spend their life self-justifying their decisions and behaviors. They reject both their need for salvation and by extension, the salvation available to them in the person of Jesus. Nicodemus was no different. There was a lot of obstacles for Nicodemus to come to Jesus, to come to the light. He'd have to express his own spiritual poverty, this long life of rigorous religion that he lived in vain. He'd have to admit that he didn't know quite as much as he thought he knew. In fact, he knew very little, which is near impossible for a man and doubly impossible for an old man, right? He'd have to say, I've gotten to this stage and it's all been for naught. He'd have to be honest and say he loved the little things that made him feel spiritual and superior to other people. Because that's how he was living his life. He'd have to admit he loved the darkness. 
On the other hand, Jesus speaks to those who live by the truth and come into the light instead of avoiding it. They live as those who put everything before God. The Gospels record that there were countless misfits doing just that in response to Jesus. In fact, Jesus told guys like Nicodemus in Matthew chapter 21, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And I think this is misinterpreted today. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And people will say, that's because Jesus just likes edgy people more. You know, he's just down with the misfits. He's just down with the edgy people and the marginalized people. And, you know, really the reason Jesus is saying they're going on ahead into the kingdom is because Jesus was anti-religious establishment. That misconstrues everything about what was going on among the tax collectors, the sinners and prostitutes. You know what was going on? They acknowledged their guilt. They acknowledged their guilt. They knew judgment was due to them. They knew they stood condemned. They longed for God's love and God's light. They longed in looking to the person of Jesus for God to do something in them that they couldn't do, that they hadn't done. And so they were the ones being reborn. It had nothing to do with, oh, they're edgy and God just likes edgy people. No, they were honest in their humility and desiring the change and desiring that rebirth and they were receiving it. Guys, that's the sort of salvation that's promised to us in the arrival of Jesus. I have to say, in my time as a pastor and as a Christian in American culture here, I've experienced a type of salvation that's of the flesh. A type of salvation that says, you know what, we're doing all these grand things for God. A type of salvation that doesn't look to Jesus, it looks to ourselves, it looks to each other and says, oh wow, look at what this person's accomplishing, look at what that person's accomplishing, let's put this person on a platform, let's put that person on a platform of celebrity. It's this type of salvation where people will say, I was basically born this way. God always loved me and I always had the answers. You know, but really it's duplicitous because they're doing deeds in the dark. That's a type of salvation I've seen proclaimed in the Christian culture of America. And it's no surprise, it repels people. But the type of salvation that Jesus promised gathers around it a group of people who say, I need God to do something in me I can't do. I need God to work with my heart to change it to be something other than what it is. I can't do it. I need God to change my motives and my desires to reorder them according to His desires and I can't do it. And I'm going to look to the person of Jesus I'm not going to look to myself. I'm not going to look to the person on my left or right. I'm not going to create this spiritual pecking. We're all going to look to Jesus because He's the source of healing, because He is the only object to which we can look to, the person that we can look to to experience salvation. And I was not born this way. I stood condemned. I'm guilty. If you put all the evidence into the court system, I'm as deserving of judgment as anyone else in this world that I'd point the finger at. Point the finger at me. And I can be honest with you about that because I've come into the light. 
I don't love the darkness anymore. I acknowledge what's real and what's true in the light. You know, people have said to me many times, Andrew, I'm so grateful for your humble approach as a pastor. It's a, it's a thing I don't encounter very much. And I receive that affirmation. That should not be rare. That should not be exceptional among the Christian when you understand the sort of salvation that Jesus was bringing in John chapter 3. But there's so much pride in the world today. You listen to the spiritual and they say, we're right and everyone else is wrong. You listen to the rest of the world and they go, well, we're right and all of you are wrong. And somewhere in between all of it, I'm saying, I'm wrong and everyone else is wrong too. And we need the grace of God to do a work in us that we can't do ourselves. I don't know if that's going to draw anyone in like it did in the time of Jesus, but it sure draws me in continually in dependence upon Him. I want us to receive the gift of this salvation together afresh this morning. Would you take a posture of prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we, we admit our own weakness. We, we admit our own blindness. To be reborn, we think, okay, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? How do I experience the spiritual transformation? What's next? What's my growth plan? And you start us in our journey of salvation where you want us to continue simply abiding in you, resting in you, Salvation is something that you've done in us, not something we do for you. Lord, I thank you for that. That means we can't lose it because it's something you've done, not something we have or haven't done. So Lord, teach your people to rest. This world is constantly working. This world is constantly trying to self-justify, to prove itself right. And yet, Lord, all we need to do is look to you who is truly righteous you're the one who's right. We don't have to lie. We don't have to say that we are right in and of ourselves. But by depending on you, you promise the Spirit will do a work in us to renew us and transform us, to heal us. So Lord, if anything, would my brothers and sisters understand that this season, you're coming into the world, you're freeing us from the condemnation that already stood against us it's less and less about what we can accomplish and more and more acknowledging what we receive first in you Heavenly Father let this be a community that lives in the light that doesn't need to prove anything to each other but can live in rhythms of confession and honesty, truthfulness, redemption and healing. There need be no front. God, we need and we seek your love. 
we need and we seek your light. We want to live lives that are plain and open before you. I want to give an opportunity this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, and you would like to make that decision this morning, to look upon him as the only source of your salvation, to depend upon what he has done, not anything you can do. If you want to admit, I'm wrong, and he is righteous in my place, would you just raise your hand where you are this morning? pray for those who are making this decision this morning. Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit, God? Spirit begetting spirit. A rebirth happening this morning. Their sins forgiven. Their burden lightened. Their healing quickly arriving. God, thank you for this transformation that begins. Invisible though it is to the eye, we see the movement of your Holy Spirit like wind upon the trees. You're moving in people's hearts this morning. Would you move in them, Lord, to free them and grant them this gift, this free gift of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.